There's a, a vision in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, that um, I came back to as I was writing this sermon because it's one of the most spectacular and bizarre sequences in most of Scripture. It goes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. When I was in, um, I did this reading once, and the whole crowd of us tried to enact this scene with lights <laughs> flipping on and off and people covering up their hands and covering up their feet the sound of thunder in the background, when you really sit down and listen to that reading, it is awe-inspiring in the oldest sense of the word, because every one of the senses is engaged, hearing, sight, sound, the smell of smoke, it's all there. There's another reading from many thousands of years later, but still a while ago, Ralph Waldo Emerson gave a, a speech at the Harvard Divinity School to graduating seminarians from Harvard. And he called out at the time what he saw the, the dry and formal preaching of Unitarian, well, at that point, Unitarian ministry. He said, whenever the pulpit is usurped by a formalist, then is the worshiper defrauded and disconcerted. <laughs> yes, I should have practiced 19th century English. We shrink as soon as the prayers begin, he wrote, which do not uplift but smite and offend us. We are fain to wrap our cloaks around us and secure as best we can a solitude that hears not. I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say I would not go to church anymore. Men go, thought I, where they are wont to go, else had no soul entered the temple in the afternoon. A snowstorm was falling around us that day, he said. The snowstorm was real, the preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out the window behind him into the beautiful snow. So what is worship beyond the words that we say? What is worship that captures and prevents folks from looking out the windows behind the preacher to see the beautiful snow? Beyond putting frosted curtains over the windows so you can't see behind the preacher to the beautiful snow. Worship is an attempt to reflect the ineffable, an attempt to capture in an hour on Sunday morning 
the whole sound and fury of life. This, um, this month, we're talking about the theme of vision. And so for this week, I want to look at, at vision as the beginning of what we do in worship. That worship is, one thing is true of worship. Wherever you fall on dualism, this question of mind and body, soul and creature, one thing is absolutely true. We are embodied beings. We are fully present in the, the physical space that we occupy from day to day. And our habits of worship should reflect that. Because done well, worship engages all our senses and emotions. We bring our whole selves into this place in this one hour. So I want to try something this morning. A kind of meditation to hopefully ground us in this space. So I want to start out, make yourself comfortable in your chair. And close your eyes. And we'll see if this microphone is on. It is. So be present in this space. Draw your attention first to your thoughts. Be conscious of the feel of your body. Where do your feet fall? Is the pressure on the front of your foot, your heel, the bottom of your legs? Where is there tension in your body? What do these chairs feel like? If you were here a year and a half ago, what do these chairs feel like in comparison to the blue plastic chairs that were here? Now listen. Listen to the silence of this space. Because silence is not silence. Silence is the sound of 150 people breathing in one room. The sounds of shuffling. The sounds of thoughts not quite expressed. open your eyes and look around and see each other. See who's in this room. See who you came with. 
see folks that you haven't said hello to in a couple months, but maybe you want to today at coffee hour. See the walls of this place, the stained glass that has been in a Unitarian church in Lincoln for a hundred years. And now we're going to sing. So if you know Spirit of Life, I would encourage you to try and sing it without the hymnal. But if you do not, it is hymn 123 in the gray hymnal. And we're just going to sing it sitting. And as we sing it, think about the sound present in this room, how it reverberates off of these walls and each other. See if you can pick out voices from the crowd and be present in it as we sing. So worship is a lot more than words. That's what I hope that was all about. When we really do worship, worship as a verb, not as a noun, we're engaging with our whole selves. Each of our senses plays a role in it. Sound is maybe the most obvious, right? Worship has a lot to do with spoken word and hymns. Music can bring us to places that words cannot. I often talk about hymns as portable theology, that the words of our hymns say something that we remember pretty well. We don't remember sermons very well, but we do remember hymns. Spoken words of liturgy that we say week after week after week eventually become expected, ground us. And unexpected words, unexpected moments where we're expanding an idea in ways that you don't expect. Moments where when I am in worship, I'm struck in the midst of a sermon by some observation or turn of phrase that I've never heard before. And I'm trapped there for about 10 minutes as I think through that particular idea. Vision obviously plays a role as well. Churches have distinct architecture. You can usually walk into a building and say, ah, that, that's probably a church. We have symbols to mark moments of worship, visual symbols. The flaming chalice is a part of most Unitarian Universalist services. 
windows behind um, a pulpit have a long history. Emerson's description of looking out the window at the storm behind the preacher because the preacher was so boring <laughs> is actually a pretty common one. Um, when I, uh, the last church I served in Long Island uh, also had giant windows right behind the pulpit, directly behind the pulpit. And as I was, one of the first times I was preaching, we had chairs set up like this, and Natalie Fenimore leaned over to me and said, it's going to look like everybody's paying attention to you. <laughs> and just trust that they are. <laughs> one of... Um, one member of that congregation later, after I'd been there a year, said that there was one tree right out the window behind the pulpit that's framed by those windows, that he would come every Sunday morning and just look at that tree and see how it changed over the course of the year, and that was his worship experience. Feeling, sense of touch, plays a role in worship. There is an experience of being seated with a large group of people we don't often get in our day-to-day -day lives. We can start to feel where there's tension. Maybe our left arm is sore from the week. Taste and smell. Those are interesting as parts of worship, right? They're tied. Senses of taste and smell, unlike vision or hearing go directly through a different part of our brain, so they access emotion very quickly. And it's a place that we struggle in worship because it is in an area where harm can happen. I'm a person with food allergies. There are folks with chemical sensitivities, so in churches we struggle with this particular sense, how we engage it. But it's also a direct line to accessing powerful emotions. I mentioned Rosh Hashanah in the, in the prayer, that we're in the midst of the days of awe. And at the start of a new year at Rosh Hashanah, you take an apple and dip it in honey and eat it to symbolize the, sweet, the sweetness of the new year. Other traditions break bread, say blessings over meals. I do wonder how we might get that component more into our worship in this place. So we experience the world through senses. We experience worship through our whole selves. And we often think of each of those things as distinct. What we're hearing does not necessarily reflect what we're seeing. But that's not always how we experience the world. Sometimes we hear a cornfield or hear mountains as the stories went this morning. There's an actual term for this, synesthesia. So the idea that our senses are tied together, that sometimes we can actually perceive a thing both as a color and a taste or a note of music that is also a shape. Some folks are better at this than others. Vincent van Gogh and Mozart were famous for having this. 
I actually read recently that babies do not have fully distinct senses. So babies are in a continual state of sensory confusion for about the first year of their life. An article I read said that the experience of being a baby is a one-year-long LSD trip. <laughs> Which, judging by my daughter some days, is an accurate assessment. But chances are that some of us have experience like this, right? So we have moments that stun us into silence, or a moment where you can almost taste a sunrise in the spring, or we're listening to a transcendent piece of music and we have tunnel vision where we just narrow down to just the sound and the person performing. 200 years ago, Emerson wanted us to ground our worship in those experiences in the embodied awe of Isaiah, the moments when we bring our whole selves into the space of worship. Our heads, yes, absolutely. Our reason, our words, but also our sense of what's really here, our sense of the solidity of the chair that we're in, the sound of all of us in this room together. And in Unitarian Universalism, our religious education tradition actually does this pretty well. And we're going to try and start incorporating some of these ideas more into worship here. I, let's get that pronoun right, I am going to try and incorporate <laughs> more of those experiences into our worship here. Moments where we maybe stand up do a ritual like we did with the water service a couple weeks ago, do these meditations, moments where we are here in our whole selves. We're also going to try some different kinds of services. I will put in a shameless plug to please come on Thursday night because this will be a place, these Thursday night worships will be a place to, to try new things like this, to enter into this space in a, in a different way, in an embodied way. In the Divinity School address, Emerson went on. The language is that of the 19th century, so it does not reflect our contemporary gender norms, but he writes, in how many churches, by how many prophets, tell me, is man made sensible that he is an infinite soul that the earth and heavens are passing into his mind, that he is drinking forever the soul of God. Where now sounds the persuasion that by its very melody imparadises my heart and so affirms its own origin in heaven? Where shall I hear words such as in elder ages drew men to leave all and follow? Where shall I hear this so pronounced as to fill my ear and I am ennobled by the offer of my utmost action and passion. The test of the true faith certainly should be its power to charm and command the soul. As the laws of nature control the activity of the hands, so commanding that we find pleasure and honor in it. The faith should blend with the light of rising and of setting suns, 
with the flying cloud, the singing bird, and the breath of flowers. That's what worship should be. Fully embodied in all the senses. And in every week that we come here, we should go forth remembering moments, remembering how it felt to be here. <laughs>